What comes to mind when you think about prayer? Do you think about responsibility? Do you think about developing a habit? Do you think about routine? Or maybe you think about your meal that you're going to ask a blessing for before you eat it. Well, chances are you probably don't associate beauty with prayer. But today we're going to learn from somebody who teaches us to do just that. And that is Aurelius Augustine. Welcome to episode number 72 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Kevin Morris with you as always. Let's jump right in today. We have been taking trips down memory lane in past episodes, looking at figures in church history and trying to kind of glean something from them in the way that they articulate the Christian life. And of course, that always points back to the Bible, which is our utmost focus on this particular podcast. And you know you've really hit it big when people refer to you by your last name, or really you are embodied as an historical figure in terms of your last name. You think about Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Aquinas. All of these people are being referred to by their last names. And I don't know what it is about the the significance of being remembered by your last name, but most people don't call me Morris. Most people just call me Kevin or Kev or just, hey, but we'll see what happens after I'm long dead and gone. If people refer to me by Morris, who knows? But today we have perhaps the figure in church history that is known the most by his last name. In fact, most people don't even know his first name. You might not even have recognized his last name because I didn't say it with the normal southern pronunciation of Augustine. Of course, when you hear St. Augustine, well, you probably think of a city. You probably don't even think of a person, but Florida is named, uh, their cities at least are named after giants in church history, especially Roman Catholic, uh, because of the historical connection there. Think of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, or St. Augustine. That's how you actually are supposed to say it. Augustine. Augustine is really the giant of church history. He's kind of uh, difficult to really place our finger on. In fact, Roman Catholics claim him as the father of the faith, but so do Protestants. Protestants point to Augustine as their own forerunner. And of course, I'm a Protestant. I believe that uh, many of Augustine's views um, were biblical, therefore were Protestant. That's the whole point of the Protestant Reformation. Anyways, but that's a whole other story. But Augustine, as a man, contributed much to the Christian life. Probably the two most monumental works that he produced in his life were, number one, the city of God, And number two, our focus for today, the Confessions. The Confessions, or as it was originally written, just Confessions by Augustine. If you don't have this book, you've got to get it. I mean, this book is almost as accessible as Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It has been printed 
by more companies and is available in more editions than almost any other book that I know of, period, in all of literature. And uh, it's a great book. It's a great book to use uh, to reflect. That's what we have been doing is learning the power of looking back at these historical figures in church history and uh, just asking the question, okay, what can we learn from these people? With Calvin, remember, it was the importance of the Bible. With John Owen, it was the idea of overcoming temptation. With Augustine, we could have chosen a whole host of different things, just as we could with these other men. But today, I wanted to really key in on learning the beauty of prayer from Augustine, because that's what this book is. This book is beautifully written. In fact, after you get done listening to this, I would highly recommend you go to desiringgod.org and on their search bar, just type in Augustine or type in Augustine biography. There's a wonderful uh, biography presentation that John Piper gave years ago on Augustine, and he really does focus on that idea of the beauty of language utilized by Augustine in all of his writings. So I want to give credit to where credit is due. I'm sure that years ago when I listened to that, I'm probably gleaning a lot from that listening and uh, putting it into this episode, but uh, we learn from each other, and uh, certainly not everything I put out here is totally original to me. I'm standing on the shoulders, just as we all are, from figures who have gone before us, um, and even our contemporary uh, leaders in church, in the church culture. But the book Confessions was written around 400 AD. So, I mean, you do the math, you're talking 1,600 plus years ago, a very, very long time ago, just to kind of situate Augustine in his own historical context. Uh, his life, born in 354 AD, died in 430 AD. So, Confessions is, roughly speaking, um, halfway through his life, really closer to two, two-thirds of the way through his life, but um, it's a reflection not as an old man, because he still has another 30 years to go at the time of this writing, but he's reflecting on his life uh, outside of Christ, his rebellious life, his life dedicated to different philosophical systems and wanting to be a rhetorician, wanting to literally speak for um, a living. Uh, remember, this was before the days of Facebook, so if you had something to say, you couldn't just jump on the internet and have thousands of people listen to you. You actually had to earn the right to speak, if you want to put it that way, and rhetoricians were professional speakers, of a whole host of different categories there, most of the time philosophy, and that's certainly what Augustine was originally interested in. Um, but he also as he wrote this book in 400 AD, this is about 10 years before the fall of the city of Rome. So this is really the twilight of the heyday of the Roman Empire, the empire that was supposedly indestructible, um, really what kind of gives him ammunition uh, to write the city of God, because that's, that's kind of what that whole idea is, the, the heavenly city versus the earthly city. And most people during this time really saw the earthly representation of society as a whole 
in the Roman Empire. So he writes this book just 10 years before the fall of the city of Rome, the fall of the empire itself will come later on in church history. Another interesting part about this book, the Confessions, is that it's normally noted as the first Christian autobiography. And that's a really interesting feat as well, because how many people write memoirs today? I mean, tons of people do. And even the whole concept of autobiographies is just a norm now. But during this time in Augustine's life, it was not normal. It really was this new concept altogether. And of all the ways that he could really capitalize on this, if you want to say, revolutionary writing style, to elevate himself, to embellish the things of the past, to smooth out the rough portions of his life prior to being a prominent figure in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, instead of that, Augustine reflects upon his life outside of Christ and even his early life uh, just after being converted, and it is exactly what the title says, Confessions. He is reflecting on the fact that he has not lived to the utmost, to God's glory. He has not lived in a way pleasing to the Lord. He has wasted a lot of time. He has pursued vanity upon vanity. It really is, in some ways, when you read this, it kind of mirrors the way that Solomon is reflecting in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just looking at the the vanity of life. So many things that people just go all in towards that are totally worthless at the end of the day. Things that won't make you remembered, things that will perish just as we all will, and pursuits that will really have no lasting impact on society and will really serve no purpose in the uniqueness and significance of our own lives. Augustine's doing this in all of these different world systems and philosophies, his pursuit of sexual pleasure in particular, and he laments these things. But he doesn't just do it by saying, I know you're God, and I really know I haven't been living how I should, or just, you know, the, the boring language, the lazy language, of our modern culture. He doesn't do that. Instead, he contrasts the depths of his own wickedness, the depths of the sins which he has committed, and he contrasts those with the beauty and the majesty and the excellency of God. I mean, this book, even on just the writing style of it, If you want to even throw out the content altogether, even somebody who's a non-Christian reading this, there is no argument of the beauty of the book stylistically. And it's too bad that um, we we don't all know classic Latin, because I'm sure reading it in the original Latin, it's even more beautiful in its articulation. But as I say, there's so many different versions of this book as it's been translated into English and a whole host of other languages. At this point, 
literally 1600 plus years after the fact. But this book, you can get it in an old English style, a modern English. You can get, even get an abridged version if you want to, but I would recommend not doing that. Um, but it's just a great book. And one of the reasons that we should capitalize on learning this idea of beauty in prayer from Augustine is because when you think about the idea of lofty prayers, we know that the Bible tells us that these are foolish endeavors. These are things that are not pleasing in God's sight. You think about the way that Jesus explains prayer to us. He does so really in simple fashion. Even though the truths are profound, there's nothing lofty about what Jesus recommends to us as we pray, especially when he gives us the Lord's Prayer as as a model, as a template. But this is not to say that the Bible wants us to avoid all type of articulations in our prayer life. What I mean is this. It's one thing to have lofty prayers that want to make a big deal of building ourselves up or distorting the character of God. I'm thinking in particular about people who pray to God and just really glory in his love and forgiveness. They they pray especially in public by reminding God of how loving and forgiving he is and Anybody that knows them knows that they're doing that because they have been living rebellious, selfish, prideful lives, and it's a almost a guilt mechanism. Well, of course, all of these things are not right and not pleasing to God, but that is a totally different thing from finding language of beauty to reflect even in small measure what is true about God. And what I mean by that is this. We can never exaggerate how glorious the Lord is. We can never go too far in describing his beauty. We can certainly fall short, and we all do. We can fall short not only in our inability to find meaningful language, but we can also fall short even before that in our ability or interest to even meditate on the character of God. And what Augustine does in these prayers, in these reflections, is he opens up each book as this whole volume is is divided into books or segments or modules, however you want to describe it. He opens each one of them up by addressing the Lord himself. And he does that in a demeanor of prayer. And what's also really amazing by how he does this is he weaves in scripture after scripture after scripture. It's not just that he's trying to find poetic language as if to be a forerunner of William Shakespeare. But it's that he's utilizing the majestic language of the Bible itself in his prayer language. For example, the very beginning of the book, 
starts out like this. Great are you, O Lord, and worthy of high praise. Great is your strength, and of your wisdom there is no counting. Even man is, in his way, a part of your creation, and longs to praise you. Even man who carries in himself his own mortality. That testimony of his sin, that testimony also that you resist the proud, for all that man is part of your creation and longs to praise you. You stir us up to take delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless till it finds rest in you. Now, that's not even the most beautiful segment of this book by any means. But it's still delightful to read and think of because, after all, when's the last time your prayers sounded anything like that? When's the last time you went to those links to say, Lord, I know that we're all sinners and I know that we struggle and I do thank you that you have made us to worship you because knowing that means that anything I pursue is going to be coming up short in my desire and satisfaction. I'm going to be restless until I learn and find rest in you, the source of all rest. Now, he says that in just beautifully poetic language, but where does he find all this language? Well, I would recommend you at least get one of these editions that comes with the scripture references, because in that one paragraph, there are, let me count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine quotations just from the Psalms, not to mention an additional one from Proverbs, First Peter, and James, and Second Corinthians. Just in that one paragraph, he has put in a fortress of verses from the Bible to inform the way and direct the way that he speaks about God and speaks about himself. That is just that wonderful use of beauty, the language of God's beauty, the beauty of creation, the beauty of God's revelation to us. Let me give you one more example. I'm going to read this um, just a couple pages later. He says this, You are always at work and always at rest. You gather to yourself, though you lack nothing. You bring together, fulfill, and protect. You create, nourish, and bring to completion. You seek when you are short of nothing. You love without the fever of passion. You are jealous and fear no rival. You repent, but do not regret. You are roused to anger and remain calm. You change your works, but your counsel is unchanged. You take back what you find, yet you had never lost it. You are never in need, yet you rejoice in riches. Never grasping, yet you demand a return from us. For you we perform works beyond our duty, to put you in our debt. But who has anything that is not your own? You repay debts, but are no one's debtor. You remit them and suffer no loss. And yet, what have we said of you, my God, my life, my holy sweetness? What can anyone say in speaking of you? 
But woe to those who keep silence concerning you, who speak so much and say so little. If there was ever a sales pitch for this particular podcast episode, it would have to be that paragraph which I just read. Woe to those who keep silence concerning you, who speak so much and say so little. Just a wonderful read. There's so much of that. Of course, the whole book doesn't follow that trajectory because it is autobiographical. He does follow a survey of his life. He gives a historical account of certain things, but then he interjects these meditations just like what I just read. It's just, again, there's just really nothing like it. Um, I just would highly commend you to read this because as a Christian, as somebody who is a very uh, systematic thinker, somebody who likes to really try to wrap my head around something, I can fall prey to missing the beauty. I can give you all of these practical steps to reading the Bible, methods, strategies, but we never want to lose the beauty of who the Lord is. God has given us, I say this quite a bit, but God has given us not videotapes or even audio recordings, but he's given us his written, inscripturated word, which we call the Bible. He has given us a method to communicate with him. And in that method of communication, we have to read. We have to have words on pages which we read, digest, meditate, and reflect on. And what that means is we are forced in our relationship with the Lord here on this earth to think through how God has decided to explain a certain doctrine or how God has decided to articulate his character, who he is to us. This means that we should never be willing to throw away words. We should never pass over words or phrases as unimportant or be indifferent towards them. Because God could have just spoken to us via sign language or a whole host of other methods of communication. God is perfect in all that he does, and this was the most perfect means of communication in his word given to us, preserved from generation to generation. And Augustine reminds us. All of the beautiful things said about the Lord, all of the majesty that you see in the wisdom and poetic literature in the Bible, such as Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and he weaves them together in the way that he prays to the Lord. And it's really a foolproof recipe, because when we do this, when we get our script, if you will, from the Bible itself, we can never be accused of lofty, over-the-top language about God. Of course, we want to be biblical. We want to be accurate in what we say. We can't just go on our own way 
and describe God however we please. But chances are, part of the reason that those passages I just read to you may sound so lofty to modern ears is because we have lost sight of one of the wonders of prayer. Prayer is not us inventing new things to say about God. In fact, most of us just treat prayer as the Santa Claus wish list or the confession booth where we just say, I'm sorry for every bad thing I've done or every bad thing that I've thought. Uh, Don't send me to hell. Amen. But instead of both of those things, prayer is our communion with God. Prayer is our time to pour our hearts out to the Lord and to worship him. We worship him by ascribing to him the glory that is due his name. And we don't find that in fortune cookies. We find it in the Bible. We find it in what God has given us. He's given us the answer key, if you want to think about it that way. And it gives our hearts joy to proclaim what is true about God, to give him glory, and to know that he accepts those prayers, of course, through Jesus Christ, not on our own accord. We don't butter him up by giving him a bunch of compliments, but instead we reflect on who he is, and we see the filthiness of our sins. Remember, this book from Augustine is not a book that shows how tremendous of a man Augustine is, but rather they are confessions. This book is a contrast between a man who is burdened by sin and a God who is perfect, pure, without spot or blemish in any way. So friends, I encourage you to grab a copy of the Confessions by Augustine. Give it a read. It is somewhat of a thick book, but I find the best way to read it is devotionally. Read a few paragraphs a day, or maybe a page or two a day, and you will find, especially when you take that much of a conservative approach, uh, that you may have trouble putting it down uh, because it's just such a wonderful read to follow from cover to cover. Well, that wraps things up for this episode, friends. want to give a special shout-out to my listeners. That's you, if you're here on this episode. We have seen the numbers continue to increase for downloads. Literally every month, I'm seeing more and more downloads for these episodes, not just the latest and greatest, but even back earlier episodes from episode one all the way to today, episode 72. And I just want to say, I am just so thankful and thrilled of your willingness and interest in what I'm doing here on the podcast. I have thrown out some information about up and coming things for the show. If you are not on the email list, just head on over to betterbiblereading.com and sign up so you can be the first to find out what is coming down the road 
And if not, be sure to tune in to the next episode on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Kevin Morris here. Have a great rest of your day.